Good morning, FCF. Uh, we are starting on a new series of messages, and it's called Turning Points. And I want to read you a definition uh, to start with of a turning point. A time when something decisive happens that causes a shift or an irrevocable change in direction. Something occurs that starts to change the trajectory of our lives. Now, historically, we can probably think of lots of things. For example, um, the discovery of the wheel. That was, that was a turning point in human history. The discovery of the, um, the telephone, a turning point in human history. The, the first airplane, a turning point. Then space travel, the first satellite, a turning point. Uh, you know, now we can look at um, the first computer and then the internet. And then, of course, a big turning point, uh, the cell phone. And now the next big turning point, I think, on the horizon is robotics. So we can see his history is full of turning points, occurrences where something changed and a trajectory started to um, begin to bend in a different direction. But, but what we really want to look at in this series of messages is, is personal turning points, and we all have had those in our life. Now, I want to say this. When, when it comes to turning points, turning points always um, are not initially real recognizable. They're not easily recognizable in every case. You're going to see that because they're not, it's going to be critical that something we're going to learn in this first message, we have it in place. Sometimes they are uh, very easy to recognize, but maybe right now you can think back a bit in your life and there might be something that occurred when you were a child. It might be something when you were in high school. It might be something that occurred earlier in your young adult life. It might be something that occurred at work might be something relational, but when you look back now, looking back, you can see, wow, that, that was a turning point. I didn't realize it at the time, but my whole life started bending in a different direction and lots of other repercussions, maybe positive or maybe negative, have occurred. And that's the other thing I want to say about this series. Now, I want to be frank with you up front. The first three messages, we're going to deal with individuals that handled turning points that brought bad repercussions. And that can happen to you and that can happen to me and it probably has. And then in the last three messages, we're gonna look at individuals that handled turning points and it brought positive repercussions. And of course, we're doing this study so that God can try to do better at helping us be more aware of the turning points in our life and to navigate them more effectively in a way that honors Him, blesses us, and blesses others as well. So to get us started today, we're going to go way back into uh, Old Testament times. And I'd like to take you to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 12. And we're going to meet a young man named Rehoboam. I'll give you a little, little background. When you come to 1 Kings, chapter 12, Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. Solomon has been ruling over all of Israel. Israel had 12 tribes, kind of like the United States has 50 states. They had 12 tribes. You can call them states if you want. Solomon had ruled over them all for 40 years. Solomon started out wonderful in his rule. He said that what he wanted from God more than anything was just wisdom so that he could serve the people uh, at the, the highest way possible in a way that would you know, bless them and honor God. But as time went on, Solomon became extraordinarily successful and extraordinarily prosperous. And he drifted away from the Lord. In fact, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is kind of his personal diary of when he was adrift from the Lord. But as he got older, the drift, the trajectory, you know, it, it had veered off. A turning point had come early in his, in his life. 
But by the time he was ending his life, that trajectory was way, way off. And he, he had married 700 women from the foreign nations that God had told the Israelites not to interact with them, not to marry with them, because they will draw your heart away to worship their God. 700! And then on top of that, he had 300 what they called in those days concubines. Essentially, they were sexual partners. They weren't quite wives, but for all practical purposes, they were. His excesses and his extravagance was un unbelievable. He, he uh, brought hundreds of thousands of Israels into his workforce for his many building projects and so forth. Heavy taxation burden he laid on the people. So when Solomon died, although his kingdom was kind of the, the height, the zenith of Israel's uh, effectiveness and glory, if you want to look at it like that, toward the end of his life, uh, things were starting to deteriorate because he refused to take God's warnings he kept, he persisted in, uh, you know, catering to his wives. He was worshiping their false gods, you know, Chemosh and some of the other horrible, horrible deities of the Canaanite tribes. So he rejected God's warnings, and so things were starting to deteriorate. He passes the baton, however, to his young son, Rehoboam. It's 930 B.C. From this point on, the kingdom, as we, we look at it at this stage, it, it'll go for about another 208 years, what we were, we're going to call eventually the northern kingdom. You'll see why. But let me start reading from 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, I know this is getting a little tricky, Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Jeroboam is a guy that was a leader, had a lot of sway with the ten tribes. Remember, there's twelve tribes of Israel. He had a lot of sway with the ten. Let me pick up reading. So he says in verse 4, Jeroboam says, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now... Lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, then come back to me. So the people went away. Good start for Rehoboam. He says, Okay, I hear what you're saying. Lighten the load. Uh, we'll serve you. Give me three days to think this through. Let me pick up reading. Verse 6. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him, and he consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people you have said tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke light make our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the young men give quite different advice. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. 
The king, verse 13, answered, har answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. Let me pick up reading in verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. Verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Let me explain to you what just happened. As I said earlier, there were 12 tribes of Israel. This individual, Jeroboam, who had received a prophecy from a prophet called Ahijah saying that he would end up with the ten northern tribes. God knew what Rehoboam was going to do. All of a sudden, when Rehoboam refuses to serve the people and says, I'm going to make it even harder on you than my dad did, the, the ten tribes, they rebel. They break away. It's kind of like our civil war here in this country where the north and the south separated for a time. The ten tribes go and they become their own entity. Sometimes they're called Samaria. Sometimes they're called Israel. They have a 208-year history after this event. The southern tribe, which consisted of Judah and one little tribe called Benjamin, they stayed loyal to Rehoboam. Now, Ju Judah, though, and Jerusalem, or Judah was where Jerusalem was, which is where the temple was, so it was still significant. And they had a large population there. Nevertheless, the majority were in the, the ten tribes. And so this, this was a split. Now, because of Rehoboam's decision not to listen to what the elders told him, not to become a servant to the people and lighten the burden that his father had put on them, because he listened to the young men, the kingdom that had been united for 120 years under Saul, under David, and under Solomon, it was now split. It never, ever reunited. So the repercussions from this decision, they, they were pretty significant. So Rehoboam gets unwanted results. He took a risk. His hope was the people would knuckle under and he would have them under uh, all the control that he desired and that his life and his rule would be maybe as good or even better than what he saw his father's. Now mind you, he had watched his father with all these foreign women worshiping their foreign gods. God didn't seem to be angry at him, didn't seem to discipline, even though God said that he was going to, but not in his lifetime. The young man could have easily gotten the idea, you can pretty much ignore God and just do your thing, and you're still going to be prosperous. You're still going to have a great ride. Nevertheless, this is what he does. So what does this then say to us? Because here's the thing that I said earlier. We don't always know when we're coming to one of these turning points in life. So it's critical that we are in a continuous state of preparation. In other words, we, we have to have the right perspective and the right attitude so that even when a turning point may come and we're not aware of it, we will negotiate it properly because we, we have the right things in place. So we want to start by recognizing these common human foundational fallacies. You see, Rehoboam was functioning under some common human foundational fallacies. He, he was thinking that, okay, the way to, to get the best life is just to get people to work for you, get life to work for you, get what you want any way that you can, enjoy life as long as you can any way that you can. And that's kind of the fallacy. That was his foundational outlook, his foundational philosophy on life. 
And of course, it was completely false. Listen to this verse from the book of James in the New Testament, James 3, verse 16. It says, For wherever there is jealousy, and listen to this next term, selfish ambition, wherever there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Rehoboam was selfishly ambitious. The foundational fallacy that he was functioning from is that he himself, man, humans, were the center of everything. He didn't start his foundational uh, thinking about life from God. He started it from himself. I think my life will be better if I listen to the advice of the young men. I think if I can control the people and get them to serve me and do what I want them to do, my life will be better. He was only thinking about himself. He was only thinking about what he thought would continue his power and bring him pleasure in the process. It was darkened thinking. Wherever there's selfish ambition, there's evil of every kind. That's a thought-provoking uh, verse there. It goes on to say this in Proverbs 4.19. It says, The way of the wicked is like total darkness. They have no idea at what they are stumbling. You see, Rehoboam's foundational philosophy of life is the same as the vast majority of people living today. Jesus at one point said that, that the majority of people are on a broad path that leads to destruction and that the, it's the narrow path that leads to life and very few find that. What is this philosophy, this broad path philosophy? What, what does it mean to be walking in darkness and not knowing what you stumble over? Rehoboam's philosophy of life was this. It's all about me. It's not about God. I'm here. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I know that some things bring me pleasure, some things bring me pain. I'm going to construct a life that brings me the most power, the most pleasure, and avoids the most pain that I can because it's all about me. I don't know how long I'm going to live, but I'm going to make it a really good run for as long as I have. He lived with the fear of death governing his thought process. He was blinded to spiritual reality. God to him was, if real at all, inconsequential. It was all about him. It was all about his short life. And so he lived with this cycle, what I call the cycle of desperation. His fear of death caused him to be driven, number one, for self-preservation. I want to control everybody and everything. I want to get everyone and everything to work for me. Second, self-gratification. I want to get as much pleasure. Whatever makes me happy, whatever brings me pleasure, I want to get as much of that as I can any way that I can. And this is what Scripture calls walking in darkness. When my whole life is driven by this, this fear of death, death selfishness cycle, this desperation cycle, I'm going to multiply bad decisions. My foundational philosophy of life is wrong. It is, it is darkness. It is doomed. Whenever we are knowingly or unknowingly thinking this way, this is the governing philosophy of life. And, and there's a little giveaway. Sometimes people don't even know they're having it. Recent, uh, very famous or very popular film was The Bucket List. Real cute, funny movie. But when you hear people talking about The Bucket List, whenever I hear it, I'm very uncomfortable because nine times out of ten, that tells me the governing philosophy of their life is the fear of death. They are living desperately. They don't know how long they're going to be here, but they're going to get all that they can. I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now is their philosophy. And so they're not thinking about God. They're not thinking about His plans, His purposes, His promises at all. God is just one more thing that if they can get Him, if He exists at all, if they can get Him to work for them, to bless them, to fulfill their dreams and their pursuits, okay. So they, they look to kind of manipulate God. And that brings us to the, the next thing, that this, this way of thinking, this darkness, this foundational human fallacy that Rehoboam was operating under. When, when you have this foundational fallacy 
You can't make wise decisions. Your decisions are never, ever going to be wise, and you end up with unwanted results. So the next thing we see is that he goes from self-centered orientation. He had a self-centered orientation life, and that then always produces ruthless manipulation of others. Um, Rehoboam saw people as things to be used to serve him. He wanted to control others. He wanted to use others. Frankly, any thoughts that he had of God were probably pretty much the same. If he could figure out a way to appease God or the multitudes of God that his father had introduced into Israel against God's will, these false gods, if he could get them to bless him, to protect him, then he was all about that. He was still solidly in control. And there are many people that have a superstitious relationship with God. I mean, I've met this for decades, people that when you really talk to them, you're shocked. You thought that perhaps they were real Christ followers, really trusted Christ, really loved God, loved righteousness, loved, loved to be obedient to Him. Not true. All they're trying to do is make sure that God blesses them. God is like a lucky rabbit's foot to them. They're trying to find a way to appease God, to get God off their back and on their side, to give them what they want, to bless their dreams, their endeavors, which is a total foundational fallacy. It just can never work. It's not the way that we're designed. Listen to this verse that really deals with this thing of ruthless manipulation. Uh, Rehoboam was, was ready to, to be even harder on the people than his dad had been. But in, in the New Testament book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 3, it says, speaking of us, speaking of our, our pre-conversion days, before we were followers of Christ, it says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deluded, slaves to various desires and pleasures, living in malice, that's where you want to see bad things happen to people, and envy, that's jealousy, hateful ourselves and hating one another. Um, Titus is indicating we've all had a time where we were ruthless manipulators of others. It doesn't show itself all the time real clear. It's like I say, it's just kind of like we're always trying to get people to do what we want them to do, to treat us the way we want them to treat us, to make our life work. We want life to work for us. We want everybody to work for us. But we will ruthlessly manipulate people. Rehoboam, Rehoboam was the king of Israel. This was an entrustment that God had given. It was an opportunity to bring tremendous blessing to hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, frankly. David had taken advantage of that, and he brought God to the center of the lives of the people. Solomon started out doing that, but he drifted far away and led the people astray. And now his son, Rehoboam, He's following in the, the darker footsteps of his father, Solomon. And instead of taking this privileged position as an opportunity to bless and serve the people, he was going to use it as a way to get the people to serve him. He was going to ruthlessly manipulate and use the people. It's kind of like something that we see in, uh, you know, from time to time. Pictures, you'll see these pictures of sinkholes, you know. Um, we're going to show you one in the message. But... Can you imagine the thoughts of these individuals when they went out on the street looking for their car? They go out there and they see this, this incredibly deep sinkhole in, in their car, you know, just laying there sideways in it. Now, the only thing that would have been worse would be driving down the street and having the ground open up like that. But there's a kind of a suddenness about a sinkhole. You know, it's just the road is fine. And then all of a sudden, you know, you park your car. And then all of a sudden you come back and your car is 15 feet, you know, down in the ground in the dirt. And it seems rather sudden. But you know and I know it's not sudden at all. 
sinkholes are caused by constant slow erosion. Uh, the, the soil is eroding. It's eroding for years. It's eroding for decades sometimes, maybe even longer than that. And it weakens and it weakens and it weakens until finally it hits a turning point and it collapses and it brings great damage. When we have a self-centered orientation of life and when we're seeking to ruthlessly manipulate others just to get other people to serve us, to do what we want, to please us, to give us what we want, to try to make life work, Sooner or later, sooner or later, we're headed for a crash. We're, we're headed for everything to sink. Rehoboam thought by using intimidation on the people, he could control them. He could use fear to bring them under his control to serve him. But in fact, you can never have an authentic relationship with anyone based on intimidation, based on fear. You can never have an authentic relationship with anyone based on bribery. Authentic relationships are always based on, I'm going to be forthright, and here's who I am, and you tell me who you, who you are, and are we authentically, without fear, without hope of reward, are we authentically in league? Do we find a, a basis of attraction? Are we philosophically in union? Do we genuinely like one another? Rehoboam thought to build relationships with people based on fear and intimidation and bribery. This, this is a faulty foundation and it eroded, eroded until finally that kingdom split. He may or may not have known what was coming, but he should have. He should have saw the damage that his father's behavior had done. He should have listened to the elders, but instead he took his risks because he thought that this was the better way to approach life. There's a, a saying that I want to share with you, and perhaps some of you have heard this before. I added to it just a bit. Christ designed us to love people and use things not to love things and use people. Rehoboam had reversed that. He loved things and he used people to get things for himself, to get power, to get control. Now, any of us can slip into this because the, the vast majority of people in our world, the best, the brightest, the successful, this is the foundational philosophy of their life. It's a false foundational philosophy, but they're driven by the fear of death. They're seeking self-preservation, self-gratification. They seek to use everybody they can to fulfill their own desires, their own dreams, and that causes ruthless manipulation of others, sometimes bribery, sometimes intimidation, whatever works, but it's a foundation that's, that's doomed to crumble. It's a sinkhole just waiting to happen. So what I want to do now is turn the corner, and let's look on the other side of this. Um, what if we were to replace uh, them with common divine foundational truths. In other words, instead of, instead of being governed by these common human foundational fallacies, what if we replace them with uncommon divine foundational truths? What if that became the foundation of our life? Here, here's the thing about navigating turning points. Unless the foundation of my life is based on truth, unless it's based on God-revealed truth from His Word, when the turning points come, as I said earlier, I might not always know this is a turning point. And so if I'm anchored to the foundation of God, His truth, His word, I'll navigate that turning point nine times out of ten very well. But if my foundation is on, a, if I have a false foundation that I'm building my life on, nine times out of ten, I probably won't navigate that turning point well and I won't get the results that I was hoping for. So let's kind of reverse this. Instead of a, instead of a, let, let's replace a self-centered orientation with a Christ-centered orientation. 
We were made by Christ. We were made for Christ. Um, this notion that, you know, oh boy, you just, you have these circles of influence in your life. You know, you got your work life and your family life and your social life and your recreational life and all, oh, and then you got your religious or spiritual life and you just kind of make sure that, that that wheel of life is balanced. That's not, that's not what the scripture teaches. That's not what the revelation of God says. It says that we were made by Christ and for Christ. You and I were made to live our life from Christ, from our union with Him, from our devotion to Him. We were meant to have His truth, His teachings, filling our minds, filling our hearts, guiding us, giving us our value system, giving us our wisdom, giving us our understanding. We were meant to live in a constant give and take with Christ our Creator. And unless we start, if we start with, if I start with myself, I'm on a false foundation and I'm not likely to navigate life's turning points very well. But if I start on the foundation I am made by Christ and for Christ, and I'm going to live my life centered supremely in devotion to Christ. Well, well, then I have a new foundation, and that foundation will allow me to, to handle life's turning points in most cases very well. L listen to this verse from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.20, a Christ-centered orientation. Philippians 1.20 says, For I fully expect and I hope that I will never be ashamed but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For me, living means living for Christ and dying is even, even better. Paul was saying that, that Christ was the center of his life. It wasn't a piece of his life. It wasn't just a little slice that he gives it a little attention to. That is not the way God designed human beings. We are beings that need to be in a reliant, dependent, trust relationship with our Creator, and that that's meant to inspire us, fuel us, energize us, guide us, direct us in all of the rest of the pursuits of life. So we need to replace a self-centered orientation with a Christ-centered orientation. Then we need to replace ruthless manipulation of others with a compassionate accommodation of others. It's a whole different way of approaching life. Whereas Rehoboam, he just saw people as things to be used uh, to bring pleasure and power to him. We know that Christ is a servant. He's the most powerful being in the universe. He's the creator of the entire universe. And yet he lives to serve those that he creates. He lives to bless and to bring the highest quality of life that he can to us. And so we need to replace uh, ruthless manipulation of others with compassion and accommodation. We need to go through life with the question, you know, how can I bring God's best into your life? Uh, what can I do to serve you? How can I bless you? How can I be uh, a channel of Christ to your life? Listen to this verse again from the book of Philippians in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. There we have selfish ambition again. Why? We read in James, selfish ambition produces every kind of evil. When you see somebody selfishly ambitious, you can take it to the bank. There's all kinds of other evil going on inside them because they will stop at nothing. They are seeking to make life and everyone in it work for them. Self-preservation and self-gratification is what's driving them. Do nothing, it says in Philippians 2, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit those two often go together, too. When someone's selfishly ambitious, they're often very conceited. Rather, in humility, value above yourselves, value others above yourselves, not looking. And this tells us what does it mean to value others above yourself. It doesn't mean that we don't have any value. Here's how you do it. Verse 4 tells it. Not looking to your own interest, 
but each of you to the interest of others. So I'm to be other-focused. I have to be intentional about that. We all tend to be self-centered. I mean, let's face it, if you've got a, a, a pain in your stomach, I don't know that. I know it, though, if I have a pain in my stomach. We all tend to be self-centered, and it takes an intentional redirection to say, you know, I'm going to start trying to learn how to focus on others. So it says, not looking on your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others in your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So instead of ruthless manipulation of others, compassionate accommodation of others, how can I bless you? How can I serve you? Man, I don't need anything from you. I just, I just want to bring good. How can I bring you closer to Christ? How can I bring you closer to God's will? How can I build you up in your trust in God? How, how can I show you more about His plan, His purposes, His will, His ways, His beauty of character? What, what can I do for you? Should be the way that we walk toward people. Rehoboam saw people as things to use. And if we don't want unwanted results, we have to make sure we're not inadvertently functioning in that same way because most of the people in the world are on that path that Jesus said. It's the broad way that leads to destruction. And this is the popular frame of mind. It's all about me. Get what I want. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. Let me share with you uh, a little bit of a tattered saying, but a very true one. People don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. You've probably heard it before, but it's a truism. Rehoboam, frankly, didn't care a hoot about the people. He saw the people as things to be used for his own pleasure, his own power. Sometimes, without ourselves even knowing this, we, we can have this same frame of mind, and perhaps the Spirit of God is trying to give some of us a check today through this story of Rehoboam to awaken us that maybe we've been ruthlessly manipulating others without even realizing it. It's, it's sort of an instinctive, do, uh, instinctive thing to do if our foundational uh, view on life is, is a false foundation. I want to close with an illustration. Um, it comes from uh, a sad situation in Nairobi, Kenya back in May of 2016. And there's a picture you'll be looking at. It's a picture of a rather tragic building collapse. Uh, in this building collapse initially, there were 33 people killed and there were 80 people missing. Now, I show you this picture for this reason. What do you suppose are the number one, what, or let me rephrase that, what do you suppose is the number one reason why buildings collapse? Um, do you suppose it's because there's, there's uh, too much weight? that people you know, put on the floors of the building? Do you suppose it's because there's faulty building material that's used? Um, do you suppose it's because of uh, construction error? What do you think is the number one reason for building collapses? You've probably already got the answer, but let me tell you what it is. The number one reason for building collapses and all the damage they bring, problems with the foundation. If the foundation is faulty, if the foundation is false, if it's not trustworthy, if it's not true, sooner or later the building collapses. You remember that image that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 7? He talked about it in verse 24 through 27. He, he said, you know, our whole lives are like a building project. He says there's some people that are exposed. They have access to the Word of God. They hear it. They know of it but they never put it into practice. He said, they're like a man who builds his house on the sand. And it seems to stand for a while. That is until a storm comes 
And then because its foundation was faulty, it collapses. It was not built on Christ. It was not built on the Word of God. It was not built on the will of God. And it collapses. It can't work. Uh, there's, there's only one way that life works, and that's God's way, the way He designed it. And then Jesus said, then there's some people that are wise. They, they build their house on a rock. And the thing that Jesus differentiated was this. He says the difference between the ones whose lives ultimately collapse because their foundation was not good, they both have access to the Word of God. They both understand the Word of God and the will of God. But the difference was this. The one who built on a rock puts the Word of God into practice, which means this. When they heard the Word of God, the will of God, the truth of God, the way life is designed to be lived, because they trusted in God, trusted in Christ, they obeyed God's Word. They made it central. They made it the focus of their life. It formed their perspective on life. It formed their worldview. It formed their value system. It created their decision-making system, and so on. They did what the Word of God said. They weren't trying to just manipulate God. They weren't trying to just appease God. They weren't just trying to wring some blessings out of God. God had truly won their confidence and trust, and they wanted to go through life not using people and using God too to serve them, but they recognized they wanted to live their life serving this God who loved them more than they loved themselves, and then in virtue of that, ser serving others. I want to share a statement with you that I wrote down here. Positions, privileges, and powers are God-intended platforms for the blessing and the building of others. Rehoboam failed this miserably. He thought his position, he thought his privilege, he thought his power was to bless him. I want you to pause and ask yourself a question. We all have been given some opportunities, some privileges, some powers, some abilities, some gifts, some opportunities some blessings. They might be financial, they, they might be mental, they might be physical, they might be relational, they, they might be academic. There, there's multiple ways, but I'm going to read it again. Positions, privileges, and powers are God-intended platforms for the blessing and building, not of ourselves, not of our comfortable lifestyle, but of others. Rehoboam got unwanted results because his foundation was flawed. His foundation was false. It can't work. So, Let's pause and ask ourselves, are we na navigating turning points in our life from the basis that we understand whatever power, whatever abilities, whatever gifts, whatever opportunities, whatever privileges, whatever blessings we have, they're meant to be platforms from which we bless and we build others, not to make our own life more, uh, more comfortable, more easy, but indeed they're there to be channels of God's grace to others. Let's ask this question. Might you, be, might you be in a turning point now? Might this COVID period be a turning point for many of us? Uh, perhaps some of us have recognized it as, as a very powerful, large turning point. The question is, is it going to bring wanted results? Have we navigated it correctly? Have we navigated it according to God's Word, God's will? Have we put Christ first and others behind that? Uh, if we've built on that foundation, we'll navigate this COVID period well, and we'll come out of it with desirable results. But if at this time we've had this false, flawed uh, foundational philosophy, 
where you know it's all about my self-preservation, all about my self-gratification. It's all about using God, using others to get what I want out of life, fulfilling my dreams, making me happy, getting me what I want. Well, then sooner or later, the sinkhole is coming. The building collapse is coming. The foundation is faulty. And Jesus said, we're building on sand. And it's not, when, it's not if it's going to collapse. It's only when is it going to collapse. Maybe, maybe this story of Rehoboam God is using to warn some of us and say, you need to go back and renegotiate the way you've handled this turning point period that this COVID uh, period has brought on your life. I, I don't know that, but it's a thought that is likely for some of us. Maybe some of us just need to close it up by saying, Spirit of God, give me wisdom that I will build a firm foundation for the rest of my days. I will, I will become more devoted to Christ than ever, more devoted to God's Word, more devoted to God's will, more devoted to God's service. Christ will be the center of my life so that my foundation, the foundational philosophy of my life, is so strong, so sound, that no matter when those turning points come, I will be prepared, I will be equipped to handle those turning points so that I get wanted results as opposed to unwanted results. And maybe, maybe for some of you, the turning point that God's seeking for you to make today is that for the first time in your life, put your trust in Christ your Creator, become His follower. He's proven His trustworthiness and His love for you by giving Himself a sacrifice on the cross. He didn't have to die on that cross. He, did, he could have defended Himself, but to let you and I know that He is governed by sacrificial love for us. Even when we ignore Him, even when we sin against Him, He still loves us sacrificially. If you'll open your heart to His sacrificial love today, put your trust in Him and become His follower, then you are on, at least starting on, the foundation that will guide you through life. You'll be on the narrow path that leads to life. Maybe today is the day. Maybe you've never thought about it before, but today's the day you need to get serious and say, let everybody else in the world follow whoever they want. Today, I'm going to put my trust in Christ, and I'm going to follow Him fully, and I'm going to follow Him freely, and I'm going to follow Him forever. Whatever decision the Spirit of God may be prompting you, man, I hope you'll take advantage of it. These are powerful moments when God gets our full attention, and they can become turning point moments. We can make decisions that change the trajectory of our whole lives. Let's pray. Father, You know each one of us. You know the turning points that we've mishandled in our lives, perhaps because the foundational philosophy of our life was not yours. You know ones of us that have handled those turning points the way you would want us to. We've sought your will. We've sought to be a blessing to you and a blessing to others. May your Spirit help each of us to understand where we stand. If we need correction, bring light that we can see that. If we need to gird up our foundations and prepare for future turning points that you know are just around the corner, help us to do so. Please keep us from being like this foolish young man, Rehoboam, and wasting power and privilege that could have been used to honor you and to bless others. Please keep us from throwing away our time and the blessings you entrust to us and wasting away our lives. Uh, help us to devote ourselves to serving you and through that process, inevitably, serving and blessing others. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.